having to go through a process of failing when you care and when you when you would do something to fix it if you could, but then you can't, right? I mean, all of those those experiences are really powerful empathy building. Hi everyone, welcome to Up Up, a podcast about resilience, perseverance, grit, going after your goals, and all sorts of good things. Today I'm joined by Sam Fisher, who's a classmate here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to let Sam intro himself here in a second. Quick rundown from what I understand. Sam graduated from Stanford University undergrad in 2014 and is currently, I'm, I'm reaching here, is currently a first year. Here we go. I'll, one for one, one for one. <laughs> Sam, I'll let you intro yourself. Tell, tell us about yourself. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so yes, you got that the main part right. I'm originally from Westfield, New Jersey. I grew up there and then went to Stanford from 2010 to 2014. Then I spent most of the last three years living in the Denver area, uh, most of which running a startup, Right Call Consulting, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit on the show and been back at Stanford since the summer, working on my MBA and living on campus. And it's great to be here. Great to be here with you. Thanks a ton. Um, so... Through the series, we've been talking to entrepreneurs, veterans, and athletes. Sam is an entrepreneur. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the concept of failure, what failure means, specifically shutting things down. So, yeah. How how do you feel about that, Sam? (laughs) No, I think that it's a fun fun topic, and I think when you originally approached me about this, I had just had a conversation with my roommate. we were we were looking at the list of classes, and one of the classes was a being offered was a class on startup failure and success stories, and that was how it was built, and learning from example of startup failures and successes. And then in the details of the syllabus, it said we will learn about this by talking to eight successful entrepreneurs. Ah. That was how it was built, and we we had a conversation all built upon that. How could you learn from successes and failures if all you do is talk about successes? That is an interesting point. I think at the at the GSB here and often in literature and podcasts and things like this, we hear about successes, those survivors. Uh, but that's that's not the norm, is it, for entrepreneurship? Certainly not for entrepreneurship, and in many things, also not the norm. What what kind of things are are you thinking about? I mean, you could go back to the other things you talk about, like sports, for example. You hear. Mm. A lot of stories about a very, very, very small group of athletes who make it. A lot of that is the skill. A lot of that is the effort. Then there are also so many little things. Like you look at baseball, for example, injuries and most of those guys' careers. And Mm. some of them stay healthy and some of them don't. And uh, Usually all we talk about are the ones who make it. I was reading some article that said that Tom Brady is a very youthful man at age 40. Something like that. Something. And 40, 41. But he's very old to be playing in the NFL as a quarterback today. Is it, that's, that's, you, you know way more about sports than I do, so I'm going to defer to your good judgment. It's okay. We don't, have to, we don't have to spend too much time on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, diving into <laughs> sports. I thought we should play, pay homage. I thought we should, you know. Yes, yes. But, no, you're, you're right. He, it would be a good example. He actually came up in that context as well. I was reading a great article from the guys uh, over at ESPN, and they were saying 
a lot of these athletes themselves try to explain their successes and go back and even the ones if you want to look at it entirely without skepticism they go out there and they tell their fans what they ate and what they drank and how many hours they slept and mm. how they worked out and even if they're telling the truth what they're telling is the story of how they were successful but sample size of one it's very tough to draw lessons from i remember a classic story i i'm going to i'm going to mess up his name the pre michael phelps the most successful olympic swimmer was mark spitz i believe yes he um at one olympics he wore a huge mustache he did not shave it the big smashing handlebar the Russian coach asked him at one point, what makes you so successful? And he jokingly responded that it was the handlebar mustache. And at the next competition, all the Russian athletes showed up with huge handlebar mustaches. That's incredible. That is, that's everything. That is pseudoscience 101, and we, we love it. <laughs> so, Sam, why don't you tell us what your startup did? What, what was the goal what what did you seek to build coming out of Stanford? Well, that's a great transition, as uh, my startup was in sports and in football. <laughs> um, so I think the idea I had is I was I was back around Stanford a few months after graduating, and I was looking for a challenge, and I uh, I had been watching a lot of football games, and every time it got to like fourth down, fourth down and one, or fourth down and two, and uh, it was these these big high leverage situations. Climactic I would, situation. I, I would I would watch the coach make a conservative decision or make a maybe a questionable decision on what to do, and it would frustrate me. And then after it frustrated me enough times, I started playing around with math and realizing, like, wait a minute, I can show why this is incorrect. And that wasn't enough for me to want to start a company, but it was enough for me to kind of keep thinking and keep thinking, and then. When these situations came up in really big games and people kept getting it wrong, I was like, all right, I need to do something about this. So I started calling some people who were working in football and asking the question, why? Like, why aren't people adopting this information? Because I'm not the first person to figure out what you're supposed to do here. They all know. You're saying a, a basic strategy. A basic strategy of like whether to go for it or kick a field goal, for example. And sometimes the decision is difficult, but oftentimes... It's easy, and they still make the wrong decision. And so I started talking and realized it's so much more of a psychology problem than it is a numbers problem. And for me, that's where I got really excited, and that's where I thought, all right, maybe I have something here. Because as like a 22-year-old who hadn't had that much experience, I was not a data expert, I had a technical background, but to me, I wasn't going to be able to convince people that my numbers were special. Who mm. was I to have the numbers that were all the answer? But the psychology, when I realized that the, the problem was, how do you get people who feel threatened by these numbers and feel like these, these numbers don't make sense to them or these numbers are trying to replace their job or replace a key part of their job, how do you get those people to change the way they look at numbers and change the way they see technology as a part of their organization's workflow? And to me, that was really the whole brain. That was psychology encoding, and it was like enough to get me excited and get me started. And we just kind of started the company to, to start with that problem, but can kind of continue with any problem in sports to, to use that, that big picture. Like why, why would people want to use this? What are the, the actual psychological things getting in the way? I think that's a good 
that's so interesting. The, I mean, the concept of why and, and getting at key drivers, I think, is so much about what we're going to talk about today. I did want to also, for context, provide our listeners with uh, the background knowledge that you yourself were a sports editor. Yeah, so... Clarify, yeah. During my time at, at Stanford as an sure. undergraduate, I was very fortunate to uh, spend a lot of time with the student media around sports, and mm-hmm. Stanford has an incredible athletic program, um, the most dominant athletic program in college <laughs> sports. Sure. Uh, year after year, and... Um, so I started. I started as a radio broadcaster for the teams, and I would travel with the uh, the Stanford women's basketball team, eventually the football team, uh, and broadcasting uh, for them. And then I also worked for the newspaper, yeah. writing and editing stories, uh, working on a book that kind of told the the story of the rise of Stanford football under Jim Arbaugh and David Shaw, and a lot of great memories from those days. Very cool. Uh, the other piece that you had as well, you talked about coding. Uh, your major is symbolic systems. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I touched, I think, without mentioning symbolic systems, I sure. think I touched on the importance of it a little bit earlier when talking about kind of the interdisciplinary problems. So my symbolic systems is a, a very interdisciplinary major. It's a program. Mm. It's not a department. So there are no faculty who teach symbolic systems. It's a combination of classes from a lot of different departments. The computer science department's probably the biggest, so I, I'm very happy that I got a really strong coding background. But everything else from there is very flexible. And so for me, my concentration was called decision-making and rationality. Mm. And the idea was to kind of take this interdisciplinary approach to look at problems that had to do with decision-making from a lot of different lenses. So, for example, I would take computer science classes that would have you program algorithms to help computers make decisions. Then I would take philosophy classes on why people make decisions or Mm. psychology classes where you look at studies under certain situations and evaluate what decisions people actually made, like how they behave. Uh, Game theory in the economics department, how would people optimally behave if they didn't have all these flaws forcing them to kind of make mistakes. And so you, so you look flawed. at these, exactly, but you look at these problems over and over again, and from each individual lens, it makes sense, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for me, what that major did is it provided me the background and then the, just the practice to take a problem that maybe makes sense from one lens and draw. you have to draw the value out of that that you can, but you also, there's just so much value you can get out of putting on a different set of glasses and then another set of glasses and just taking a different approach and just a different way of thinking or talking about a problem, even different frameworks can be helpful. It almost seems like you're putting the idea on the table and walking around it and looking at it from different perspectives, holding it up, saying, does it hold muster this way? Is it strong in this way? Maybe we could build this out a little bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think also potentially what it did is just in like the, the classroom itself. Yeah, I'm struck we're sitting in a classroom at the business school right now. And um, you know, every every classroom is a little bit different, but the business school has its has its feel, its sense. Sure. And then if you go to the engineering school, they have their feel and sense, and not just physically, but also kind of the interaction back and forth with professors and how you're supposed to present a point and how people engage in dialogue and conversation. That changes so much, even as you walk around this campus. So at the very least, even as I was learning different frameworks, I was also learning how to interact with psychology majors and how to interact with 
philosophers and professors and majors, but also people in econ or computer science and just a tremendously different way people have of, of presenting points and engaging with material from, from those different disciplines. Almost like you're speaking different languages. Yeah, absolutely. Socially, especially. It really does almost feel like you're going to a different country, you know? <laughs> Computer science land. and Yeah, you joke, but uh, <laughs> anyone who's been over there will tell you it, it feels like a different world. It, it is. A, having currently, currently being an engineering student, I can certainly say that there are, there are different things that are focused on. So I, I want to talk about the concept of failure. And I mean, the, the work you did on the startup obviously encompasses so much and so much time. Um, when did you know that your startup was failing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it was a period of time where I went from in my mind, like not seeing it at all to seeing it in a big way. And I think that this continuum of like how much I was able to see that we were failing, um, it, in that, I could say it was a, probably a couple month period where I went through that process. A lot of it started, I'd say the first thing that really started it was um, we were getting really close to one of our big deadlines in our world with football. Um, once the season started, no one talked to us. No one picked up the phone. Mm. No one would really do anything. And so we were getting really, really close to the start of a season, trying to get people to actually use our product. And we were we were getting really close with one partner of ours. And then I think mostly because we weren't really that ready technology-wise, that partner walked away uh, kind of the very last minute before we were going to start kind of a pilot with them. And it was like a week or two before the season started. I knew we didn't have a chance with anyone else, and it was going to set us back like a full year probably. And I panicked a little bit. I started calling people trying to figure things out, but that was there was really nothing we could do at that point besides mm. keep working at it and wait six months or wait a year. So that was probably the first point where I looked at myself in the mirror and said, do I have a year? You know, do we, do we have the ability now even if, even if we build the right technology and even if people want this? Is this enough of a setback where we can't make it? And then I think on that, at that same point, probably the, the second conversation that was a huge part of it was uh, my, my parents visited. And my dad, uh, bless his heart, he was, he was definitely trying to make me feel good and trying to be you know, walking around a very difficult subject that whole weekend. But at one point, he sat me down. I think we pulled out Excel. And he started going, walking me through an exercise where he said, um, you know, let's be really optimistic. That was how he started. Like, let's be sure. really optimistic. What's the like, best case? Let's say, exactly. Let's say you get, like, what's the most customers you get this year? I was like, I don't know, three. He's like, let's go bigger, five, ten. And so, like, I threw some bigger number down. And then, like, all right, how much do you think you're going to get for each other? And we, we'd go through it, and I'd get to the end. And in the very optimistic world on this spreadsheet, you're staring at it. And it's just not a profitable company. It's not a company worth funding. It's not a company mm -hmm. that was going to in, you know, gather more capital or attract more capital before we ran out. And looking at him and looking at that spreadsheet and kind of feeling angry and bitter, like you tricked me, but then kind of like going, <laughs> going back pretty quickly, it was like, no, you're, this is exactly what I needed to see is I was kind of lost in this world of, oh, well, there's so much uncertainty here or so much uncertainty there that didn't make sense. And once I got rid of the uncertainty, 
you saw that even if I made it through, it wasn't, it wasn't actually success. And mm-hmm. that was when we initiated, uh, I started having conversations with my team about finding something else and started looking for another job. And we started the wind down. It's so interesting. It sounds almost as if you're like, okay, I, I picture a farm, you know, and, and you're, you've got everything planted and you've got some seeds and, and some, some parts of it didn't work out, but your dad almost asked the question, okay, you have the best harvest ever and you pour water on it and you, you, you fertilize it and you do everything you can and you go, oh my gosh, we're still going to starve. You know, this, this as a farm isn't going to uh, sustain itself ultimately. I, I wanted to ask, so there are so many questions here um, and just for, for background context, correct me if I'm wrong, you had about $100,000 in funding from kind of friends and family, you know, um, investors who'd put in smaller amounts. Um, I say smaller, $100,000 is a lot of money. Um, but, but for companies, you know, companies often take millions to get going. With, with that, it, it's, I, I think of your situation in terms of stakeholders, who has skin in the game, who has an interest either financially or emotionally or time or what have you, your employees, some of whom are more on equity than salary, your investors, yourself. What does it mean to say, well, sorry, we're, we're going to toss in the towel or we're going we're gonna to wind things down? How, how do you deal with all those different, different interests? Well, I think that's just a great question, and I think it hits the nail on the head of what is so difficult about kind of getting to this point. Um, I think the answer is it's hard because all of the people you talked about as stakeholders are probably going to have slightly different priorities or slightly different you know situations of what would what would be best for them. Yeah, I mean the the ultimate trade off you can just start with is how much do you keep these people informed versus you know how much you you allow them to be able to keep working on what they're working on and mm. not have to worry like like that trade off even if you're a transparent not trying to optimize for the company but just optimize for everybody's happiness like when do you let them know that you're struggling how do you let them know that you're struggling do you let people leave pretty instantly so that they can start finding something else to take care of themselves or do you try to rally everyone to hang on and double down? Um, I think that for, I've been talking more generally, for my specific situation, hmm. um, I think that I was very lucky that I didn't have any overwhelming pressure from the investors. Uh, like there certainly wasn't any more money coming in, um, sure. but they were not angry or have it, they didn't have unrealistic expectations. They were supportive when I eventually let them know what was happening. So I think that, there could have been a whole other can of worms if it weren't for that. But given that that was the situation, um, it became pretty clear to me that that the priority was just kind of taking care of the team. And I think at that point, we had been as big of about five of us, but when the first writing kind of came on the wall, that first conversation where we, we lost our pilot program, I was able to let one of the people know that, hey, he should probably start looking then, because at least for him, it was clear that it was time we weren't going to scale fast enough for it to fit his lifestyle. Sure. Um, someone else ended up leaving pretty soon after that. And then it was just the three of us left trying to figure out what was best. And I think for me, um, I was already into Stanford business school. You know, I was going to be coming here 
at some point in the next year or so while we were going through all this. And um, with my technical background, like I, I knew there'd be a job there for me. So I just really tried to make sure that uh, everyone was okay and we did everything right. Like I, I wanted to make sure I didn't cut any corners and um, or make anyone feel blindsided. So I kind of just kept that small team informed. And then funnily enough, um, I was the first person to find another job while we were trying to figure this all out and wind the company down. And in the period afterwards, about one month later, one of my two co-founders joined this this new company. And then mm. a few months after that, when I left to go to school, we were able to bring the other co-founder on to replace me. So my team almost got absorbed by this other startup in uh, out here in Mountain View. So that was, the I think, the most stressful thing for me, though, was just making sure that my team was okay. Um, and like the contract that you know, mm. we had even discussed uh, when we started it, when I brought those people on, like they knew there was a lot of risk. They knew there probably wasn't going to be a job there for that long. Setting those expectations. Yeah, yeah. But the expectations were that if that happened, I would take care of them. And in that sense, I would take care of them where I would make sure that I was a good reference and that their time wasn't a waste and that they had learned enough while working for me that they would qualify for another job that had more stability and didn't have as much risk and wasn't paying them bare minimum. And the fact that I was able to do that made me feel really good. Like that, yeah, we weren't able to pay the investors back, but we tried. And yeah, I wasn't able to pay my employees that much, but um, we were able to get them to this point where they're really happy at their next job and doing really well. And so at the end of the day, um, plenty of, plenty of downside to all this, but that made me feel like, I think that's the reason we're here. Like, I don't think I'd be having a positive conversation about, <laughs> oh, yeah, my company failed and we're okay because sure. um, no one really got that hurt, which has been, it's, it's good. It's good. It sounds like there was a, the ability to avoid the pain in part was certainly a response in the moment. It also sounds like, I mentioned earlier, a setting of expectations, but it, it sounds like with, if it's the investors, the employees, everybody knows, hey, this is the game we're playing. It's high risk. It's high stakes. Um, in all likelihood, it won't work. There's some stat out there of, you know, so many startups fail and all this stuff. When I think about it, I, I often just think that the default is that the startup won't be around. I, you know, to me, the, the startup I worked on, they're working real hard, and there's been a lot of progress made. I'm always amazed year after year, and this is not a dig on them, but with any startup that, oh my gosh, it still exists. To me, the default state is is death, but with um, with love and care and and certainly a lot of luck, uh, things continue to live. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, and I think that when setting expectations, it's clear enough that these things are almost certainly going to die. That it's <laughs> it's not that hard to come to terms with it. Sure. What ends up being hard, and I had a discussion. Some friends of mine. Just had their last day at their startup a few days ago and have moved on. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about like what was the hardest thing about actually like once you have all this information in your head of we're failing, like what's the <laughs> hardest thing about actually failing? Um, and the hardest thing is like it's the lifestyle change, you know, like sure. um, you get in these routines, you you find happiness. And that's the part. It's not hard to come to terms with the fact that your company failed. It is hard to come to terms with the fact that like you're not going to be hanging out 
in that little home slash office with the kind of the canvas or the this continuum of like how much I was able to see that we were failing. And I'm seeing the people. So like when my startup ended, I had to move out here for work and yeah. I wasn't seeing my friends as much. And a couple of the people working with me moved away from Denver for their next job and the whole thing kind of falls apart. So that's the thing that's hard. It's not that hard to say goodbye to like the company or the idea or the code that you've been working on that has hundreds of thousands of lines. Like it's hard, but that's not what is really hard about it. And mm. that's also the part that you don't see up front. You come to terms with everything else up front, but the man having to let go of this thing that I love, like it's like leaving summer camp or leaving college, right? Like the a lifestyle. Even when you succeed, it's hard to leave, right? And so that yeah, that's what's hard about the the failure part, because you haven't gotten all that you can out of it and it's time to time to move on. It sounds like in all of this I hear a deep sense of Certainly, there are logical, rational elements, right? I will be living in a different place. I will be working at a different job. I will have different expectations. Um, we won't have this open blank canvas whiteboard in the same way, simply because we'll, we'll all be in different places, working at different companies. These are all logical, rational things. What it sounds like, curiously enough, is that there's an emotional element that says, on a very basic human level, there's, it sounds like there's some fear, anxiety, sadness. Oh my gosh, things are going to be different. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, if it, I, I think of the classic moments in life, getting, going off to college, right? Leaving high school, leaving college. You know, it's these big separation points in our lives. So it sounds like part of the loss aversion may not just be, oh, well, this sucks. We got to write this one down but also, wow, this is going to be a different life. How do you get, I mean, you're, you're in a place of very strong privilege. You've got several aces in your pocket. You not only have the ace of Stanford past, but also of Stanford future. How did you, and I guess maybe the rest of your team, get excited about the new future? Do, do you get excited about it? Are you just like, well, oh well, Time to go to work again, or or is there is there new hope? I, I'm I'm so curious. Yeah, no, I uh, I think that's a great a great question. Um, I think that you know all these things are evaluated in the context of opportunity cost logically. Sure, there are definitely the the emotional things as well. But even if you just want to look at this logically and rationally, right? Like I'm sitting there and it's November or December of 2016 and the company's failing, I'm going to Stanford Business School in September cool. of 2017. So I'm looking there, I'm like, well, if I make it to like June, then maybe I don't need another job. And uh. I'm doing all this internal calculation, right? Just But just there, you've already heard how like these these sliding scales and this like the emotions of it and like all the, all the, the confounding factors, which is like, Hi, I don't actually have that much to do in the next six, seven months. I don't have this. I'm not looking at the next 10 years of, all right, where do I go from here? I'm, I'm only looking at a few months, and that just threw everything off, right? That it made it really hard for me to get excited about the next thing. And mm. it took until me starting at the next thing, really liking my boss the next thing, liking my team at the next thing, to get me going at all. I think that it would have been really hard because it was, like, it was hard to convince myself uh, that it mattered. Um, 
Now, I think that having a little bit more distance, uh, it, I'm not like dejected or anything from having the failure and, and that being you know, the thing to stop me from moving forward. But how, how is that? You, you are, are such the anomaly from people I've met who have failed in big ways like this. Not, not, to, not to put you on the spot here. Well, I, I guess I am. How, how is that? We, we talked about, yeah, you've got a you know, softer exit and everybody is in some senses made whole and, and, and all this, but where is the bright side for you, Sam? I find this so interesting. You know, I think the the bright side is that I'm here at Stanford. Sure. Um, and I've never seen the counterfactual, right? And I'm not really you, sure what that looks like. What, right? what would have happened? What would have happened? Um, I I think that I don't. I think that there are plenty of valid reasons to be dejected after a failure of a startup. Right? Sure. And I think one really obvious one is like, I missed this opportunity. Yeah. Like I had this opportunity, like I knew the iPad was going to be big and I was building a competitor and, sure. and, and they made a billion dollars and we were so close, right? Like I wasn't, right? So I, I think the first reason I'm able to, to move past this is like, what did I actually lose? Like I had two great years. I had a tremendous amount of experience gained. I'm back here at Stanford. I'm starting to get refreshed. Um, ideas are starting to kind of go again. And to me, I just like, I think it's very easy to rationally and logically like see this as just something I was very lucky to get to do and I've gained so much experience and perspective on and something that will kind of propel me moving forward. Now, mm. I think that I could have a very different attitude if something failed again. I think I could have a very different attitude if I'm, you know, at a point in life where I don't feel like I'm learning every day from the failures, right, and things like that. So I think for me, I didn't have crazy expectations for this. I think there were a few periods of time during the time I'm doing the startup where it's like you find something, you get so excited, like, oh, my God, we're going to make so much money because we found this thing, right? Like, oh, we need to raise $100,000 because you should see what we're going to make. And those things, yeah, you lose that, and that hurts a little bit. But at the end of the day, like, I don't feel like I lost very much. I feel like I gained a lot. Um, my friendships are still strong, and I think it, <laughs> that's good. Like the the relationships with those co-founders are really strong, and that so I think important. for me, like, yeah. I look back and like there are plenty of mistakes that I made, but I'm very happy to be where I am right now. And so I think because I had to fail and have the startup end to get where I am right now, um, and then the failure is no big deal. You know, uh, who knows? Maybe it would have been the most fun thing I've ever done, but um, that'll be for the next experience or the one after that. Yeah, it sounds like there's a, a root optimism and that the core perhaps of your resilience is focusing on not just the positives, but I, I would specifically and very literally say the takeaways, what you took away from the experience. And a lot of that sounds internal and it's not, it's not these external things, but... Um, Perhaps those things are not, not only useful, but it just sounds like those things are valuable and potentially useful, which is cool. I like that. I like that distinction. I don't think I've heard people talk about the difference between valuable and useful. Like there, there is a lot of overlap, but sure. they're not the same thing. Yeah. Um, I certainly think these lessons are useful. I've noticed that every time I talk to a friend who's doing a startup, I'm able to see how, how useful I can be. Sure. Um, but the valuable parts of it, I think 
I think I gained a lot of empathy. I think that um, being lost, I think having to go through a process of failing when you care and when you when you would do something to fix it if you could, but then you can't, right? I mean, all of those those experiences are really powerful empathy building experiences because a lot of humans, a lot of people, I mean, this is what they deal with. They deal with those emotions and it's not in a startup, it's just in life. Um, so for me, those are, I think, the valuable things that I take away. Wonderful. We're, we're about to wrap here in a few. I, I do want to say, um, well, one, thank you for talking about your failures with us. Thank you for having me. I think it's awesome to have a platform like this to have this type of conversation. It's, it's, it's so cool. And I think a lot of times we do fall into perhaps I could say the trap of simply looking at successes. Um, and it's wonderful to hear your candor. I have to ask the concluding question of every interview, which is, is there anything you would like to add? Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Um, you know, I think it's a great, a great question. Uh, maybe one that just because I think we, we got caught up in a lot of the, the big picture stuff. Um, sure. Maybe just talking about a little bit of the day to day, or just a couple funny stories to kind of place you in the moment of being there. I think that, I think you captured all the big picture, but I think looking back, the things that are missing are just those. It's like little moments of four of us goofing around. Or um, what? What's one of those moments? I have to ask now. Yeah, you know, I think probably a, a great one would be um, just we had like an office dog for a little while. Uh, and it's the funniest little story where there was just someone living in my apartment, which we used, my apartment complex, which we used as my office as well. And uh, one of my coworkers just like fell in love with this dog that one of our neighbors had. And he started talking to her and she's like, you know, I'm going away for a period of time. Like, you want to look after her? And he did. And they started bonding. And then it became a point where she would text us and be like, Hey, I'm headed to Boulder for the day. Can I drop Keel off? And she was just like, the dog would just like hang out with us throughout the day and became just like the office dog where <laughs> the dog used to kind of just like hang out at home when mom ran around. But whenever mom had to run around, we had to hang out with the dog. And I think just, uh, it, that's probably the moment where it, it started to really feel like we were, a team, a family, like more than just like a, a little office. And that's probably a good one to, to end on. Oh, that's so nice. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm just, I'm picturing this dog. What, what kind of dog was it? I'm, I, Yellow Lab. The Yellow Lab. Okay, because I, I had like a small schnauzer in my head. Oh, that, that would be great too. I like, I like small dogs too. <laughs> but no, this is a big office dog. Thanks for your, your time today, Sam. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime, anytime. All right. That's, uh, that's a wrap for today, everyone. Thanks for listening to Up Up. Um, hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time.